0: Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition podcast. This special series is designed to help business owners and C-suite leaders better understand the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and its potential impact. Hello, I'm Mike Kolk, a tax
1: partner at Cohen & Company. Welcome to this episode of Chief Insights, the Tax Reform Edition. Today we're going to talk about the entity structure debate caused by the passing of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in December. Specifically, we'll explore whether business owners should be reconsidering their entity structure in light of the new tax law. I'm joined by Chris Madison, also a partner in our tax department with a large base of closely held business clients asking questions about their business structure since the new law was enacted. Welcome to the podcast, Chris.
2: Hi, Mike. I'm glad to be here, and you are right. Since the Tax Act was passed back in December, there's been a lot of press devoted to the new 21% tax rate that applies to C-corporations, As you know, since the 1986 Tax Reform Act, a significant number of our closely held business clients have been organized as either Subchapter S Corporations or Limited Liability Companies Taxes Partnerships. With the passage of the new Act, Those clients are now asking, does it make sense for them to convert from either that Subchapter S or LLC Tax as a Partnership to a C-Corporation, primarily to take advantage of the new rate? So, Mike, does it make sense for those clients to convert their existing entity structure into a C-Corporation?
1: Well, it's interesting because the 86 Act that you referred to essentially eliminated the ability for a C-Corporation to avoid the tax on the sale of its assets and liquidation. That creates a double tax scenario, which has been plaguing us for for many years. So the new flat 21% tax rate is a real boost to the earnings of publicly traded companies that previously were paying 35% tax. But it also narrows the gap on the cost of this double tax analysis. We also have to keep in mind that the new tax law also enhanced the flow-through entity taxation, which would be LLCs and S-corporations, and added new Section 199A which allows for a 20% deduction of the income from those entities. The problem is that provision is very complicated. It also, at the higher income levels, limits the types of industries or companies with wage and property levels that can take advantage of that. The goal there, however, is to cap the highest rate at 29.6%, so closer to 21 But in order to do a proper analysis, we have to go apples to apples. So just for a moment, take hypothetically a married filing joint couple using only the standard deduction. If we want to look simply at the marginal tax rate, they can have taxable income of up to $189,000 and still only be paying a 22% tax rate, which is roughly the same rate as the corporation's. However, because the corporation's rate is flat, it's more appropriate to look at what the effective rate on those that same couple might be. So if this couple had at least $400,000 of adjusted gross income, their effective tax rate would still be a flat 21% because of the use of the lower tax brackets. Interestingly, though, if all of that income were to come from qualified business sources eligible for the new deduction, the income they could have was now over $800,000 before they pay a higher effective rate. So what you're saying, Mike,
2: is that for those clients whose income is at a more modest level, not that $800,000 is necessarily modest, but that those clients would continue to benefit from having their structure set up as a flow-through entity uh, versus a C-corporation. Does that necessarily mean, then, that those clients with incomes over $800,000 would benefit from converting their businesses to a C-corporation?
1: Well, they definitely would have a short-term tax benefit because of the rate alone. However, you have to keep in mind that the rate benefit only applies to the taxable income that they leave in the C-Corporation. Most owners are going to take money out of the company either by compensation or rents, royalties, or even as a dividend. So if they pay out in one of the first three categories, they're essentially bringing the money back out to tax at their personal tax rates. If instead they elect to go with a dividend, those high income levels are going to be taxing dividends at 23.8%. So if you take that rate applied against the remaining income after the corporate tax, you end up at 18.8% effective rate. So the 21% corporate rate plus the 18.8% dividend rate is still slightly higher than the 37% rate they would pay otherwise, but only modestly. The difference, however, is that the dividend could be timed to come later in time. So there's a time benefit involved.
2: Okay, Mike. So what you're saying is that I don't have to pay a dividend at the end of the year. Does that mean I can accumulate cash in the business forever and, and not have to pay that double tax until someday when I sell the business or pass away and, and leave the business on to my children?
1: Well, that's an interesting idea because it's not the first time it's been considered. This was actually something that was very critical to tax planners in the 1960s when corporate rates were substantially lower than personal rates. And there was a lot of legislation directed at what they termed the incorporated pocketbook. So two specific tax came out of that. The first one is called the accumulated earnings tax, And basically, that limits the runway that a company can have to gather low-taxed equity. So you're only allowed to accumulate earnings based on the reasonable business needs of the company. And after you exceed that amount, this tax comes into play to force, essentially, an extra-dividend-level tax. So the government's going to require that I pay tax even if I don't pay the dividend. That's the risk. Now this is a tax that's only assessed by the IRS, so it would require an audit and an assessment of this penalty tax by an agent. Uh, interestingly, there's a safe harbor amount of $250,000 of accumulations. That number has been in place since 1982, so can, you can see how little attention this has gotten over the years. The second tax, however, you have to worry about is not one that's assessed only by the IRS. It's self-assessed, and it's, for, it's called the personal holding company tax. And what this is based on is when the revenue, you've accumulated so much income that the revenue of the company is more than 60% from what I'll term investment type sources. It's definitely uh, a little more specific than that. But for those companies that have so much interest, dividends, royalties, other forms of revenue that it exceeds the gross revenue of the business, this tax kicks in. So it prevents you from doing that. So you're saying that I
2: can't leave all this cash to accumulate forever without facing some other potential tax issues. Right. Um, So what about those cases where a business has a meaningful cash need? For example, they're earning... And, and reporting significant taxable income, but that money isn't being paid as a dividend or a salary to the shareholders. Uh, it's being used to acquire equipment, to reinvest in the business, to pay down debt. Wouldn't those taxpayers benefit by being a C-corporation such that they're paying less tax currently and therefore would have more cash at the end of the year to make those reinvestments back into the business?
1: Absolutely. So, in those circumstances, a company that is does have essentially reasonable business needs can take advantage of the lower rate and not have to worry about the penalty taxes. The problem is that if you were an S corporation and decided to do this to take advantage of this opportunity, the changing to a C corporation is is a, is a more of a one way door, or at least it's a door that doesn't swing back for some time. What I mean by that is when you're an S-corporation, you revoke your subchapter S-status and become a C-corp, you have a five-year waiting period to reestablish yourself as an S-corporation. Once you do that, there's another five-year waiting period for something called the built-in gains tax. Built-in gains tax is there to replicate the double tax a C-corp would have for a five-year window after making an s election. So by doing that, you have to wait. You can't just have a ready-to-sell business and say, guess what? I want to avoid the double tax. I'll make my S election, and then all of a sudden, I'll only have single tax. You have a five-year window. So the point here is that we're in 2018. The rates are very attractive everybody going to look at this and say it's a great thing to do. The problem is that you can't even become an S-corporation again until 2023 at the earliest. In between now and 2023, we had the midterm elections this year. We have a presidential and congressional elections in 2020 and more midterm elections in 2022. There is a reasonable chance that if there is a change in the politics of the government, there could be a change in the tax laws and you may be stuck with a higher tax rate, not the one that you thought you were going to get. Wow. So,
2: so far, Mike, it sounds like what you're saying is that clients thinking of converting to a C-corporation have a lot of things to be worried about. Are there any reasons outside of the tax rate alone where a client would benefit by being a C-corporation? Well, I think there's
1: a lot. I mean, I'm not trying to make it sound like C-corporations are not attractive and not something to consider in a closely held context. One of the great examples is that Section 1202, which has been in place for many years, only applies to C-Corporations and specified qualified businesses, and it allows the owners to avoid all the tax on the sale of their stock as long as they've held it for five years from when they had uh, created the C-Corporation. So
2: while there may be a double tax on a dividend, there might not be a double tax if they qualify under 1202, on the sale of the business at the end of the day.
1: Right. And this is actually very commonly used in the tech industry. So a lot of new tech companies are formed as C-corporations just for that reason. The other benefit now under the 2018 rules is that C-corps no longer have to worry about alternative minimum tax. And they also don't have limits on their state and local tax deductions the same way as individuals do, given the, the change related to itemized deductions. In fact, we have clients that are making... In some states like New York, you can be a C corporation for state purposes, yet you're a federally taxed S corporation. So we're we're creating a, a C corporation context there to take the tax deduction for the New York tax on the corporate return and not have it limited by the $10,000 limit for the individual. Another benefit of C-Corps in Ohio is very obvious because they don't even pay Ohio income taxes. It's just the cat tax, the same as if they were a flow-through entity. But I think, honestly, that the best use of a C-Corp in most of our client circumstances seem to revolve around times when you can use them in combination with a flow-through entity – you know, some kind of bifurcation of the taxable income so that some of the income is taxed to the flow through and some of the income is taxed to the C Corp.
2: So you're trying to get the best of both worlds there.
1: Exactly. I mean, a perfect example of when you could do that would be for those individuals with flow through entities that might have limitations to take the 20% qualified business income deduction I mentioned earlier. They may find a way to insert a C-corporation into their business model that takes away some of the taxable income, lowering the flow-through amount that goes to the owners, and then enabling them to take the 20% deduction. Or meals and entertainment expenses are further limited than they would have been ever before. Sometimes it's better if those non-deductible expenses get trapped in a C-corporation where the technical cost of not having that deduction is only 21% as opposed to something higher with a flow-through entity. And then if you really want to get a little more creative, you can have concocted ideas where you have a a flow-through entity that is partially owned by a C-corp, so it has 51% of the ownership, and maybe has a fiscal year, which would create a deferral for the remaining 49% of the income that would come through. There's a lot of things that can be done. It's very facts and circumstances driven, and it's definitely something that bring C-corporations more to the fore than they had been in the past.
2: Yeah, so clearly there's a place for C-corporations in closely held business tax planning, but it sounds like what you need to make sure of is you're not letting that rate tail
1: wag the dog. I agree. I mean, it's very true. You got to look at this stuff as a great thought exercise on paper, but we, if we don't see any real net benefits, we're not going to suggest that the client puts those into action. It's another useful option for us to consider, but it's certainly not a no-brainer.
2: That's great, Mike. Thanks thanks for all your insight. If there's one takeaway listeners should walk away with today, what would you like that to be?
1: Well, I would I would term it as don't, you know, don't be fooled by the media. Don't, you know, watch for Trojan horses. Don't get caught up in the fact that there's a lot of hype over a low corporate rate just to use that to make a decision. Everything here is facts and circumstances based, and it should be considered with your tax advisor before you decide on any kind of a change. It can be used very properly as a tweak or a major change, but it needs to have a lot of thought before you implement and with that, we're going to wrap up today's podcast. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to all who joined us today. Have a good day, everyone.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition. Subscribe to this podcast series at CohenCPA.com slash podcasts. To gain more entrepreneurial insights that may impact you, visit us at CohenCPA.com slash impact. Cohen and Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action taken based on information in this podcast should be taken only after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law.